Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark again, episode 104. October the 11th, 2019, and I know you're excited, Mark, um, and I'll go, I will tell our listeners, I was going to keep it quiet, but you're off on another holiday shortly, but we have recorded a couple of episodes that will fill in, so you won't miss out on your weekly podcast, Mark, so you've got your bad packed, I hope. It, that's a job for tonight, Brendan, as, as we discussed, <laughs> and, and you know, Kate's on my case. Get that stuff packed, and we talked about um, the, uh, the the camera gear. Um, it is a diving yes. holiday, and so I do have a little bit of um, underwater gear to see if I can improve my underwater photography. Um, and um, and of course, I couldn't go. We're going to Indonesia, and I couldn't go there without a uh, long lens to catch some of the beautiful birds, and maybe a macro lens to uh, to get the, uh, the a few of the reptiles and invertebrates, and of course, a, um, a just a, a standard lens for some um, you know beautiful faces of humans. That's well, no room to pack any spare underpants <laughs> by the sound of it. So, do you try and take all the camera gear? on carry-on, in carry-on, or do you have to put it in the hold? And if you do, what do you pack it in? Do you put them in like a Pelican case, a really tough case or what? I carry the, um, what what I think is the most indispensable stuff. I've got a, oh, what's the brand? I can't even, I'll have to do a review because I've been using it for a while now, but um, it's a adapted backpack um, with the camera gear in it and some space for some extra stuff. And it's really, really good. Um, so I will do a review of it in the next, well, when I get back. So I take that and it is just, well, literally just slightly too big uh, for, you know, it, it just barely doesn't fit in. But I've been able to talk my way around each uh, plane trip so far um, without having to put it in the hold. Um you know what's going to happen now that you've <laughs> said that <laughs> for this trip. You'll have a bit of a story to tell when Ooh, you get back, Maybe, Mark, maybe. You know. <laughs> yes. um, but no, no yes. I carry most of it. Good, yes. Well, I told you the story of when I went on my India trip, I made the fatal mistake of even though I had it padded within a camera pouch and then within wrapped in clothing and then in a case I'd left my main, I put my main camera body uh in in the not in the carry-on and yeah it it arrives the other end in new delhi um as an old camera <laughs> um, so i ended up having to buy a new a new um main a body um and that was the first day in india um uh, running around the markets <laughs> trying to find a reasonable body there and that was quite an experience mark i must tell you but um that's part of the fun isn't it of of a holiday it's the it's the adventures you have, and these days I I, I tend to view that as the, the fun bit. You know, so you expect things to go wrong, yeah, and if they if if they don't, um, it's a bonus. But you know, the whole part of the holiday is just chill and um, en- enjoy the ride. Exactly. So I'll be I'll be giving you a report on how chill and enjoyable the ride was <laughs> when I get back. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. Now, you just mentioned a review and you said you did have a review off air um, to me just before we started here of a of not a veterinary product. I, do, we do, I just wanted to highlight the fact that we do make a big effort to try and um, think of, uh, of things that we can review that would give people a bit of an uh, you know, uh, insight into maybe some of the veterinary stuff, but it doesn't always work. And um, and and obviously, you and I sometimes have some other things on our mind. And the thing that was been on my mind this week to review has been a movie that I saw. Um, I did watch it with Kate on our cable channel here in Australia. Um, it was. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody, the Queen movie, um, and yes. I know you've seen it as well. And you know, those of us of a particular age grew up with uh, the music of Queen as a bit of a backdrop to many of the most exciting moments in our life. Um, and it, the music stood out 
you know, obviously because it was different, um, it was anthemic and operatic and um, and so it was different to everything else that was being uh, poured upon us at that stage. Um, and I don't know, the charismatic lead singer, I can see where this movie came from because... Um, because Freddie Mercury obviously was a personality of some um, entertainment value of of some legend. Yeah, that was epic nature. That's I was searching for the word. You a legend, um, and it comes across in the movie. It is. Look, I've got to say, Brendan, that it's not a documentary. Um, you do not feel that you're delving into nuance when you watch this movie. I hope you felt the same way, but. That was made up for the fact that it was at times a little bit abbreviated or they'd taken poetic license with certain events or even some of the personalities were made a little bit um, one-dimensional like caricatures. I'm sure they were all much more complex than they appear. The skeleton of the movie hung around the music of the band just made the music the movie outstanding in my opinion it was excellent entertainment as long as you came to the movie expecting nothing more than being entertained i think you would have been satisfied what about you brendan i agree i'm waiting for your score there mark yes i thought it was well Give give me your score, Mark, and then I'll compare it with another not unrelated sort of genre movie. Well, I gave it 4.3 stars out of 5. <laughs> now let me get my calculator here. 8.6 out of 10. Well, there you go. Um, yes. Um, gee, that's, um, that's a bit, a bit um, scary how that happens, Mark. Um, yes, I, I well, I must admit I was going to give it Oh, 8.6 as well, I must have, I must admit. Um, yes, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I agree with all your comments there. And my comparison would be the other movie, um, about the one about Sir Elton and John, so Rocket Man, which I think you're planning on potentially seeing. And I thought that one, even though it was a completely different style of, of musical, um, it wasn't very good, is my opinion, of, of Rocket Man compared with um, compared with um, Eddie's film. Um, so you know, and I'd be giving that one probably a five and a half out of ten mark, um, Rocket Man. But I do recommend you view it just to get a bit of a feel. And I think the main thing is um, with that one, the the lead actor for Rocket Man, and I I can't remember who it was, um, was. Um, I don't think he was that good. Um, yeah, he just, it, it just, it just didn't, didn't, he didn't pull it off at all. Um, yeah, and the music, as you know, we probably both grew up with Elton John's music as well as um, Queen's music um, was good. Um, but yeah, it, it just didn't gel. It didn't work um, for me. So yeah, it's it's. It's not a good one, and I'm just, I'm just looking on IMDb as I speak, Mark, and I think the average there is 7.4 out of 10, and, gee, I reckon that's vastly overrated there. I'd be, as I said just a couple of seconds ago, I'd be lucky to give it more than 5 out of 10. I just did not like it at all, Mark, but I'd be interested in what our listeners think, and I'm a bit depressed this week because we didn't get any emails this week, Mark. Um, <laughs> Not feeling loved. We're not feeling loved. So you're going on a, on a holiday to dive. So you'll be okay, and I'll be sat here alone, um, awaiting some emails from our listeners. Um, I'll have. No, I've no doubt you'll get some. You'll get some love, Brandon. You'll get some love. Yes. Yeah, so that's our review. Well, we had two reviews there, and uh, I I will have. Um, once you come back, I have a couple of um, reviews that are more specific. One one of them is is not. Too specific, but reasonably um, relatable um, to veterinary science, Mark. Um, so, yeah, we can. Well, you can look forward to to that or not, um, depending on depending on um, once you listen to the reviews. Um, you may you may not like them. I'm about to cough, so I'm going to put myself on on mute, Mark, and you can talk about your first news story. I will start with my first news story, which um, it's it's been a little bit of a uh, theme, a bit of a. a, a uh, recurrent um, uh, emblem of our podcast that we talk about toxoplasmosis um, and and it uh, it is amazing how this cat 
parasite um, does pop up in so many areas of, uh, of biology um, and definitely veterinary medicine. So this particular article um, talks about uh, um, the danger that uh, toxoplasmosis represents for California's sea otters. In fact, um, it does seem to be, um, well, killing a lot of them. So cats are... Um, one of the most destructive invasive species around the world um, because of their predatory habits. And there are estimates that they consume 4 billion birds around the world each year and maybe as many as 22 billion small mammals each year. Um, but there is another aspect to the damage that um, cats can do to wild populations of animals, and that's the single-celled organism Toxoplasma gondii. Um, and the t organism, um, you know, is a, uh, is a primary, the, the cat is the primary host for this parasite. Um, but um, the intermediate hosts can be any, um, any animal that uh, leads up to being eaten by a cat. Um, and so cat feces carry the oocyst, which in this particular instance get washed down streams into the sea and um, rather than being um, destroyed, they manage to survive. Um, snails eat um, the, the uh, eggs from the biological film that occurs on kelp in the bottom um, and then these snails end up being food for sea otters and the... Um, so the, the marine mammals ingest the oocysts when grooming or most likely hunting. Um, and I think the statistics here in this article suggested that um, that uh, 12 of 116 sea otters examined in this particular study died primarily as a result of toxoplasmosis. And scientists uh, identified the parasite as, as a contributing cause of death in another 21 of that 116, meaning um, that 33, uh, or probably something close to, well, just under a third, um, died of toxo or toxo-related problems. The, one of the interesting points about the article, Mark, and you touched on it, is that people flush in cat feces down the toilet that goes into this water habitat there. And I don't think that's an unusual thing to occur worldwide, is it, Mark? Um, I think a fair number of cat owners do routinely use that as a way to dispose of their cat poo that they pick up from the litter tray, and it's certainly something that we shouldn't be encouraging here at all. Um, and it is the take-home message from this article that... Um, that uh um, the source is most likely domestic cats, domestic cats that are kept by people. Um, and the best thing that we can do to limit the chance is to dispose of their waste properly, as in into the bin and then into landfill. Um, and there's a cost that goes with that, but cat owners should be happy to pay that so that their animals don't um, start to interfere with them. Um, wild populations at a distance. The, the, it was interesting that um, the, the, uh, that there has been talk that um, California sea otters aren't the only marine mammals threatened by toxo, um, and monk seals, beluga whales, and some other species of dolphins um, have been recorded to be affected by toxo. So my tip to everyone is put your cat poo in the bin. Yes, good point, Mark. Well, my first news story isn't a ray of sunshine either, Mark, and that's about <laughs> the last 14, and I'm not quite sure how we pronounce this, Mark, is, is it lower or low or low um, water frogs, L-O-A, water frogs. Oh, cool. lower. Lower. Um, the last 14 lower water frogs had to be rescued from their natural habitat. So this was from June this year, 2019, herpetologist, Andre Sherrier took some of his colleagues to view the lower water frog, a small and speckled critter that dwells exclusively in a stream outside the Chilean city of Calama or Calama. But upon arriving at the site, Mark, 
they found the stream was dry and the population of water frogs, which were already critically endangered, had shrunk, so to speak, <laughs> figuratively, literally, to just 14 sickly individuals in a pool of muddy water. So it's not a great story. So as far as I know, this is the last 14 that um, – and they're pretty – the picture there, Mark, they, um, they're um, – I think they're pretty, pretty, pretty frogs. These um, I, I like the look of these frogs. You may think they're fairly bland, but I like the look of the mark, um, the lower water frogs. Um, so they've captured them, and their aim is to breed them um, in captivity and do something about it. Oh, in the long run, is the, you know where I'm going to go with this. Um, it's the difficulty of what are we going to do with 14 of this species? Should we give up, Mark, with this? Um, the, 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 the news gets just worse, worse <laughs> with this, this story, Mark, because the bottom line is the water's stream, the frog stream, where they, or the water frog's stream, which had dried up, it was due to illegal water extraction for mining, agriculture and real estate development. Does that, does that sound familiar? <laughs> Surprise, surprise, Mark. So human pressure on the environment causing it, Mark. So they're, they're getting tips from some of the other experts at other um, institutions who have successfully bred um, frogs and also started campaigns to try and get public to donate to help um, the the um, the um, reproduction that they want to get going with these frogs. But then the difficulty is trying to decide where are they going to put them um, because there's nowhere to put them if their environment's been destroyed, Mark. It reminds me of, reminds me of, there's, well, there's two stories that reminds me of both to do with rivers. The the um, sawfish that were harvested yes. in uh, the Kimberley out of um, one of the rivers that was drying up and polluted because of, well, allegedly mining activities um, and although even though efforts were made to translocate those endangered fish freshwater sawfish they were they all died similarly in New South Wales the gigantic Murray cods who were dying in their thousands um, a group of those were collected and moved to another part of the river where there was still some water but um, they were tagged um, so they could be identified, um, and they are highly territorial animals, and it comes as no surprise to learn that they too uh, shifted into another habitat that had existing populations, could not establish a territory, and died themselves. So I don't know, Brendan. I think I do. I I know it's a human. It's human nature to want to save these individuals and. When you can see them distressed like the 14 lower water frogs plopping around in the mud, you're, it's a human, it's a natural human caring instinct to try and save them. But I'm getting hard yes, in my old age, Brendan. <laughs> yes. Although though the, the other point this article made was that crucial to save in this particular water frog, maybe getting the public to care about them because these particular frogs and a lot of amphibians or, and reptiles, they're not cute and cuddlies um, as far as a lot of the public are concerned. So they're one of the species that receives no attention. So they're trying to market things and trying to promote them and encourage donations there. And, and you'll like the fact, and I don't know whether you saw this in the article, Mark, they made a Spotify mixtape <laughs> tape for the frogs <laughs> packed with wide-ranging mixed genre hits, including Don't Stop Believing, Water Me and Help by the Beatles um, to try and, well, try and garner a bit of interest um, about saving the frog. But, yes, I must admit I'm getting a bit cynical and, and grumpy in my old age, Mark, and, and start to think for these sort of cases that what's the point? Why do we bother? <laughs> Why do we bother? I mean, we may as well all just go on holiday and um, go diving and um, before they're gone, to see them before the they're gone. Yes, my next right. my well, next story just takes it to the next level, Brendan. Where here, I'm not worried about whether they're going to survive or not because they are gone. They are long gone. Uh, my next story um, is about um, a new type of, this is really, really exciting. A new type of pterosaur was discovered in uh, outback Queensland um, and 
and it really has changed the perception of um, of the you know the the ecosystems that uh, occurred in the the uh, far distant past. Um, pterosaurs are, um, were found. Um, this particular pterosaur was discovered in the fossil fields around Winton in regional Queensland um, in 2017. It was discovered by a farmer who has an interest. Lots of the farmers up there, as I understand it, um, have an interest in the fossils that might occur on their property. Um, and he did protect it. Um, I think he found it with his grandson. He did protect it and passed it on to paleontologist Adele Pentland, um, who now spears the spearheads the team researching the newly discovered pterosaur um, who they have uh, dated at um, well that it survived until around 90 million years ago um, so the interesting thing about um, the uh, pterosaurs is that they are um, they have potential uh, Particularly, you know, like birds, they have hollow bones, um, and so their bones are very quickly destroyed. Those particular circumstances, which give rise to uh, excellent fossils, um, are even more difficult. Those circumstances are more difficult to attain in bird and bird-like bones, um, and so the the fossil record is particularly. Um, thin when it comes to uh, pterosaurs, those flying reptiles. And this one really is an outstanding example because it it has a four-metre wingspan. Um, so, uh, so it really does qualify as a bit of a dragon. They've, they've uh, labelled this, uh, the common name for this pterosaur, the iron dragon, because the fossil was discovered in ironstone, uh, but it Bloody hell! It does justify the the uh, the um, name dragon being a four meter flying reptile. Do you like the artist impression, Mark? Of the, do you think that it would be what it looks like? And we'll have a link to it on our website. I I reckon it probably. Well, what can you say? <laughs> it's as good as any other um, uh, any other. Ferrodraco lentoni. Um, it's a, it's as good as any other impression, I reckon. Um, yeah, I like it. I do like it. You're you're a bit of a dinosaur. Um, in fact, one of the people I follow on Twitter, Tetrapod Zoo. I th- I'll have to remember the Twitter handle, but um, that's a particular prehistoric animal art um, uh, site art um, uh, group, and. Um, and that, it is amazing. There's a subculture of people who who take quite a deal of pride in in accurately rendering um, the animals of the past as in as much scientifically justifiable detail as they can. So I, I, I like that particular drawing. Um, the skull is um, with that Adele is Adele's pretty happy about having that skull too. I reckon that she's proud, just... isn't she? She's <laughs> proud there with that. Um, and what she got it on a bit of foam or something there. She just or she stuck it down to something there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, well, my last news story, Mark. It's another depressing one. Um, <laughs> and well, it's some amazing photographs, and it, and that's because it's from a photographer, um, a, a career photographer, Amy Vitale or Amy Vitale. And she, um, interestingly, I don't know whether you've read the background with this one, Mark, she began her career covering conflicts as a photojournalist and she started at 26 in places like Kosovo, Angola, Gaza, Afghanistan and Kashmir. So, gee, she's lucky she survived all of that. And she originally said she wanted to document human brutality and to tell powerful stories through her photography and um, about violence and destruction. And uh, as as it talks about in this article, uh, as she became clear to her that journalists have an obligation to eliminate other things that unite us as human beings. And she said she came to an epiphany that stories about people and the human condition are also about nature. And then she sort of switched over to photographing nature, Mark, and, and some pretty amazing 
pictures in her portfolio. So, and this article is about what she learned about documenting the last of the male northern white rhino's death. And she happened to, luckily or, or unluckily enough, um, follow Sudan, who was the last of the um, white rhinos, um, the male northern white rhino. Um, that there's only two females still alive, I think, Mark, um, at the moment. I, I think they're both still alive. They're planning on some sort of AI. Um, again, it's another recurring theme, whether or not we should be trying to um, continue this species um, when we've only got two females left of the species. Um, but she documented the the death of, of Sudan, who, who died at, I think he was, what, 40-odd something, or, um, and um, some pretty stunning photographs. And she just talks about her experiences with the keepers and um, her, well, her disappointment and, and just depression about... Um, extinction of species, Mark, and um, what we're doing to some of these animals and what we're doing to the planet. So, you know, it's, I'm trying to think of a, a positive spin on this. They're good photos, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, and just she's just saddened by the just the thought that, that these species like this are, are, are being eliminated just because of humans thinking that they're, their horns have some sort of medicinal or, or other purpose, Mark. And, yeah, that's even more depressing, isn't it, when you think that it's such a pointless pointless reason to kill these animals, um, yeah, for the demand for rhino horn, which is still which is still there, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, so that's my last news story, Mark. So I've got nothing. I promise, I promise I will be upbeat next episode and I will have um, – Lots of fun stories and maybe even some Look, I think, some dad I jokes. Think, um, yeah, some dad jokes. That will be even sadder. Um, I think it is. Yes. I think it I think oh. it I'm sure our um, our good listeners appreciate that in our effort to um, canvas the in, the things that interest you and I, it would be insincere of us to dance over these um, these uh, subjects and topics and pretend they weren't happening because with you know even with our relatively small um, but very special um, platform um, I think um, I think it is really important that you know we express our concern about these things and uh, um, that particular story does um, give us Give us it, it gives us a unique perspective that uh, uh, someone so versed in trauma, um, the that um, documenting through those images the life and death of the last male uh, northern white rhino. Um, that that's an important thing to to think about and contemplate. And unless we do talk about it, then like we said in the previous stories, people just won't care. And if they don't care then nothing will be done. So I, I apologise if we're boring people, but it is important to you and I, Brendan. And as usual, that was an article from National Geographic and, you know, beautifully presented and we'll have the link to that and some amazing photos, as you'd expect. Um, yes. Um, so a bit very sobering, but um, I think we're, gonna, we're going to move on to something that might be a lot more boring than what we've just spoken about um, <laughs> because this week's main topic is one you suggested, Mark, and I've, I've entitled it Paperwork, but we're going to have a bit of a chat about, <laughs> well, a few different things. Well, you're, you're going to take over most of this one, Mark, aren't you? I'm just going to interject occasionally. We'll talk about confidentiality with our with our patients and our, our clients, um, and I think if we don't run out of time, as we often do, we may talk about um, forms and consent forms for things like procedures and euthanasias, um, script requests for medications and, and how we deal with concerns from clients about um, those sort of processes. Um, yeah, so do you want to kick it off, Mark, and talking about the confidentiality? I did want to, um, I did want to talk about um, confidentiality. I mentioned it to you earlier today, Brendan, and um, the reason that I thought it would be good to sort of canvas such a, well, it is, you know, I suppose it is a little bit boring, but um, it is something that I, uh, that definitely uh, has a big uh, role in 
regulation and and you know that I'm lucky to be involved in a number of aspects of um, the regulation of the veterinary profession and um, not in any significant way, not in any, you know, um, uh, empowering way, but it's good to have a practitioner view, I reckon, in in that process. So I'm glad to be involved. Um, and one of the things that has been changing gradually, and this is the reason that I thought it would be good to talk about it, um, is the role of confidentiality. Now, in times gone past, um, they're, they're, so there are different laws. There's laws in each of our state jurisdictions. So you're in Victoria, I'm in New South Wales. There's laws there. There's uh, laws um, that are federal laws. Um, and within each of those jurisdictions, different things will take priority. Um, so uh, for a long time, confidentiality was very, very high up that list of priorities, um, a number of uh, federal laws and state laws made it um, paramount that we were very, very careful about um, what we what we revealed. Um, and I can give an example from my own practice, Brendan. We had a, um, a, a cat um, that uh, that came in that had been owned by a particular group of, uh, by a particular family um, for eight years. And they'd had the cat, fed it, cared for it, vaccinated it, done all the routine things. Um, and it struck them once that, um, you know what, and this, it was our own fault because we do promote microchipping at our practice and so this eight-year-old cat that had well more than eight years old that hadn't been microchipped we suggested to them that it would be a good thing so before we microchipped it we scanned it and lo and behold it was it had a microchip and it had an owner um, yes. from the other side of Newcastle um, and so this begets a very very complicated series of of interacting responsibilities with the law so um despite having had the cat for the greater part of its life um and caring for it and doing all the right things the people who presented the cat were not uh, under the law the legal owners the people who had registered the cat and uh had the microchip details were still the legal owners um so we did have a responsibility you can't just blow these things off we did have a responsibility to tell them about their cat but the corollary is that we couldn't reveal to them any details about where the cat was that uh privacy um uh uh um mandate um it meant that the people who owned the cat, who had, who now held the cat, who didn't own it but held it, um, that they, we couldn't, uh, without their permission, reveal their details. So we were caught in a very, very difficult spot. We had a legal mandate to tell the people who owned the cat that their cat was okay, but at the same time we were not uh, able to reveal to the people where the cat was or who held it. Um, yes. So... Fortunately for us, that quandary was solved by the goodwill of the um, of the of the current owners, who did themselves contact the previous owners, um, and um, and uh, and they came to an agreement that the cat had chosen this new house, um, and the old owners transferred ownership to the new owners, um, and it was all very friendly and amicable, but. There is no doubt um, that 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 could have gone like very very badly, um, and and I think the key thing I'd say there, Brendan, is that veterinarians need to be aware of those uh, all those 
regulations in their jurisdiction. There are often little flavours between different states that might make those those responsibilities slightly different. And as I said at the beginning, I think the nature of um, the importance of confidentiality is changing. So I can tell you two examples in New South Wales. Um, the recently, um, the uh, state government quite rightly has consolidated all the various agriculture laws under one overarching biosecurity law, um, which is good it uh, does a lot of good things it uh, it brings a lot of it removes a lot of duplication and ensures um, that there's less of a bureaucracy that can go wrong and uh, lead to damaging consequences for injury uh, for industry as a result of biosecurity problems but that change in legislation has changed the responsibility of veterinarians in reporting biosecurity issues. So previously, um, there, you know, if you knew and understood and seen foot and mouth disease and you saw it, um, then you'd have like an ethical responsibility to report it. Um, but there was no legal mandate. There was no way that you could um, previous, well, it was unlikely that you would get into trouble significantly if if you didn't know or but now there's actual actually a legal mandate under the biosecurity laws for veterinarians to report um, a variety of circumstances and for me personally that the one that's um that's most uh, um, uh, jarring i suppose is the reporting of of uh, exotic animals so previously we would have um, we would have executed our responsibility in informing someone who came to us with, for example, a chameleon um, that that was an illegal animal and they were required to not have it. Um, but we would treat it in the in the um, in the sense of uh, you know in the in the context of making sure that it wasn't suffering. But now there's a, a legal mandate for veterinarians to report those biosecurity risks. Um, and so those confidentiality responsibilities are changing and that should make themselves aware of them, Brendan. Yes, and I think, well, you've opened a can of worms. A can of worms, Mark. Yes, I think the authorities are getting better here in Australia and hopefully the same with overseas with our overseas listeners with with notifying veterinarians fairly reasonably regularly about their requirements and their obligations regarding these sorts of things about confidentiality and, and security risks and biosecurity and um, the other things that we may touch on like um, um, requests request for medication repeats etc and that's regular sort of email newsletters usually, isn't it? And and, and clarifying the law because, yeah, you know, you look at the, these legal documents and they're pretty damn dry, aren't they, Mark? And dead. they just give a... They're dead, and Brendan. They give, they give a reasonable summary a lot of the time and, and I know the... Um, the the AVA, but also the vet board here in Victoria, Mark, do do good little newsletter summaries, and they do case reports, examples of these sorts of things to try and highlight the the important points. So I think that's helping with it. But um, it's gee, it's it, it's difficult, isn't it? It's if you dealt a case like the one you mentioned with that that animal that's owned by two different people. <laughs> um, it, it's it's hard. I mean, they, they've certainly stressed recently here in Victoria, Mark, with with making sure that you do scan every animal that comes into the clinic, and and you know they're constantly reinforcing that fact to try and avoid the the, the situation that you got exposed to there. But um, yeah, with, with us who who deal with unusual pets or exotic pets, it, it is a real conundrum it's a real challenge isn't it to decide how how are we going to treat these animals do we treat them do we do we dob them in do we who do we report them to do we have requirements to report them um morally and or legally to report them and and the difficulty can be there that it does change a bit too that regulations and 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 keeping on top of it's difficult if they're not constantly telling you look we've changed the law in this this aspect there um and these clients some of these clients may not be deliberately doing things that they 
that they shouldn't be and that it's often ignorance with some of them, Mark, and some of that, and even some of the ones that they know they have an illegal pet, um, some of them have, have, have got up the courage to bring that animal that's unwell to the clinic and, and I feel a little bit sorry for them, the fact that they do have, a, have some care for that animal and that the animal's unwell and they decide to bring it to the vet realising that they might be get and they might be reported um, to the authorities about that animal, but they care enough that they want the animal treated. So it's 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 difficult, you know, it's difficult. So um, do you have um, specific requirements that, or, or recommendations? That, well, let's just get practical. What what do you say to your your staff, Mark, about um, these sorts of things? Um, so if somebody phones up, for instance, with, let's say, uh, that chameleon that you mentioned um, and, and Mr Smith or Ms Smith phones up and says, I have a chameleon that's unwell, it's lame, or it's um, gravid, um, and um, I want it treated. What, what's, the, what's the phone conversation you, you would tell your receptionist to say? Well, it's changed recently, and it's a good question, because previously we would um, have, have simply said that, um, that we can't treat those animals um, unless they are, unless you know there's a very small cohort of those animals that are on on license, and if they are not on license, we can't treat them. And uh, you should, if they are not on license and illegally imported, they could be carrying disease, which could be dangerous to our um, wild populations. And you should. Um, uh, surrender them to, in New South Wales, the Department of Agriculture, who will humanely euthanise them and test them for some of the things that they might present a danger for. Um, that's how we would have gone in the past. Now we're in a much more difficult situation because of the biosecurity laws. We are not in a situation where we can choose to, once we know about an animal and we know about a person, um, we had in New South Wales veterinarians now have a legal obligation to report that. Um, and there are actual, there haven't been any um, imposed yet, but there is the potential for fines to be imposed on vets who do not do that. So at the moment where we're, we're saying to people, um, you know, we... we <laughs> We, we we can't treat them and don't tell us who you are before they even blurt out anything um, because it's a difficult thing, um, you know, for, for us to um, – we want to be part of the system that solves uh, biosecurity issues, but we don't want, as you said, to put people who are naive, who are um, – who are, um, who are demonstrating care for the animals, um, the worst, probably the worst uh, group of people, the ones who have the animal, don't don't take it to the vet and just set it loose, um, in most instances to a slow and painful starvation death. Um, but, yeah, it's difficult. It's very difficult. Yes, the other, thing, you... the other thing I think that's slowly happening, with, and it's interesting that um, you talk about, uh, I think there's a shift in, particularly in some sectors of, of pet control. Um, so rather than have a registration fee, say, at the council, which allows them to run the whole um, microchipping identification story, um, my impression is that councils increasingly shift the workload to veterinarians, getting veterinarians to identify the animals, to house them when they're lost, to return them um, where they can, um, all part of, under the law, all part of the work that councils should do under their animal control work, but just subtly and, and by regulation and protocol and policy, um, that responsibility is being shifted to our profession without any recompense. In fact, if we were to receive, to ask for remuneration for it, um, you know, who would you ask it from? The, the, uh, the, the, every time we have a stray animal, there's no way we're getting money 
to be fair, we occasionally get money. People will um, care so much that they've pulled the dog off the road and they will offer to, um, you know, we've definitely, because we would hold hold an animal, so it's so often Friday afternoon, the stray dog has just dodged a car out the several streets from the hospital. Someone brings it in. We're not going to get it to the the council impounding facility till Monday because they closed down over the weekend. Um, and we have, a, I've got to tell you, Lake Macquarie is very, very good. I wouldn't, I don't want you to think I'm bad mouthing our local government area. Um, but we just, we definitely have had clients who go, oh, look, I'll pay for their boarding over the weekend to make sure that, um, you know, they don't go to the pound. Now, we don't accept that money because. You know, we're happy for the good Samaritan to have done a good thing so far. Um, but you wouldn't want to routinely be asking people for that money and you certainly aren't going to get it from the people whose dogs strayed. Um, so it, it's difficult that vets are being asked to do more and more and and, uh, and actually not make any money out of it as a small business. Yes, and I expect, um, before we move on to the next topic, Mark, <laughs> I expect that you, you would be expecting that some of unfortunately some of the other veterinarians in your region may consider that they would handball those sorts of cases to mark because his his is the clinic that deals with the unusual and exotic pets so um they might be trying to handball those over to you and you may not want to comment on that um, <laughs> but um I, I know that we we in the past have had that had that um occur with us in that yeah they they just send it all our way, um, which I don't think is the right thing morally to do. Um, not only ends up we, but get swamped with them all and have to deal with the um, conundrum of dealing with those, Mark. So, yeah. Um, no, so de- de- um, the confidentiality as far as um, dealing with exotic or unusual pets or illegal pets is is a real nightmare. Um, and we haven't really answered any of the or, or provided any real solutions to that, but um, I think you I, I think you had hit hit on my solution would be if if um, someone asked me, um, I'd be happy to give them specific information about New South Wales. But you hit on, hit on the the best thing is just it's so busy in practice and. You know, you're trying to work up this case that's complicated. You've got to do research. The regulatory stuff just often slides by the side, and and um, and definitely, I know uh, your board in Victoria and in New South Wales. There's a lot of effort that goes into the type of communication that's going to be um, useful for veterinarians in practice. But it still takes an effort by those veterinarians to read that stuff and and to absorb the most important bits and. You know, not everyone's going to understand it and ask questions where they don't. That that regulatory stuff is not important until it's really, really important. And making sure you're aware of it, I think, is the solution. And each of the jurisdictions we're broadcasting to are going to have slightly different flavours. And so being aware of what's going on in your area um, knowing what your local board expects of you um, and the various other laws that apply to vets, not just the Vet Practice or Vet Surgeons Act in your area, but the Pharmaceutical uh, Services Act. The, um, the, uh, um, there's a whole bunch of laws that uh, change and you need to be aware of them. The Biosecurity Act in New South Wales. So make yourself a, a regulation-aware veterinarian is my tip, Brendan. Yes, and it might sound, it may not sound too exciting, and it probably isn't, but it is something that unfortunately we need to we need to make sure we do. Um, I think we'll go on to another sort of general sort of paperworky type consent type topic, Mark, and that is the topic of consent for procedures. And um, you have a fantastic consent or admission form that um, that I copied off you. Touch on. And then I recopied off you once you added a couple of other really interesting things there, Mark. So, um, and I think most clinics these days do have a, a um, hospital admission consent form, um, which is what we call it. And I presume you call it something similar, Mark. Um, and this, uh, you know, I think we should just run through what what we've sort of developed over the last 
20, 30 years, Mark, that you and I in our clinics have developed um, and refined um, to include on that form and not make it too, too cumbersome. Um, dense with legal um, jargon in there, but um, basically um, both cover your butt as far as um, th- um, um, giving estimates, but also um, providing information and um, um, consent informed consent isn't it the word that um, we like to talk about so let's just go through a few of them and and um, what we have on these little consent forms mark and the obvious ones that we need to always have up the top of the list mark is the contact details for the client during the day because you do have those obvious procedures where you're in that surgery and you need to contact the client because the animal's arrested on you or you found some other sort of um, lump or bump um, when you're doing that exploratory or the something goes right or goes wrong with that surgery and the estimate that you had given the client, the rough estimate of, of the cost, need to be altered and you need to contact them. So we always ask the client two or three times and we get them to write down their mobile or their cell number on their mark as well as their home number and say we need at least one number that you can contact we can contact you on during the day um and invariably mark um, no matter how many times you say that you still have clients that say yeah 24 7 i'll answer the phone straight away i'm worried about fido and things go wrong with FIDO and you try and contact them and it just goes to message bank. So that's number one that I always um, try and really stress to the clients, um, getting that contact number. What else do we have on there, um, Well, I was just going to quickly, without trying to slow you down too much, just reiterate how important that is. And I know a couple of cases where particularly dentals, Brendan, dentals are one of the things that, um, that uh, maybe clients are not always aware and vets will get in there and then go, oh, I've got, you know, mouthful of easy extractions. They're all just dangling in there. I'll yank them all out. Um, the client was not made aware of any of that and that's a real bone of contention um, at the moment. There's, uh, It's a real new, new um, class of complaint um, where clients um, have had um, teeth removed and they haven't been informed. So having a contact number to talk to someone uh, about the changed circumstances during a dental is really important. And several contact numbers is often a good thing. Um, and if you can't do it, then stop. Don't don't take the teeth out. I know vets' natural instinct is, oh, let's just solve this with one anesthesia. We've got it. But unless you've canvassed yes. the possibility of taking those teeth out with the client, um, I, I, I would be very reticent to go beyond my remit um, and do any more than I've uh, uh, gotten the permission to do from the client. And I think the key there, Mark, is that when you chat to the client in that pre-admission period, um, whether it's a consultation the day before or a week before for that dental or on the morning of the admission into the hospital, that you then reiterate to them that, hey, if if I do need to remove any teeth in your dog or cat or whatever species, is it okay for me to go ahead? We will try and phone you, but um, there is a chance that we might need to remove teeth. And, uh, and I always try and say that to them so that they're at least worded up in the fact. Um, because then you'll see, you will get that paranoid owner who, who just does not want to have any teeth removed under any circumstance, if possible. And they would even go to the um, expense and effort of, of you referring them to a a veterinary dentist for, you know, root canal and, and, and capping and all yeah. those sorts of things. I don't know what yeah, you've had definitely. those, Mark. Um, but, you, but you'll find out that that's the case with them. So you, basically it's asking it. it it's not it's rocket science. Is it? It's trying to co- cover your bases and asking them and, and getting a feel for what the client does or, or doesn't want to do, you know. We, and I'm sure you have the paranoid clients who, who, who every time you admit they're their 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 beloved Fido, they don't want any clipping of the of the forearm um, to put that catheter in, and it, it takes me five minutes to convince them that hey, you know, it's just going to make it a little bit easier. And if I can't see the vein properly uh, without clipping the leg reasonably well, um, it may actually be a little bit more uncomfortable or painful. We might may end up with a hematoma for poor Fido. Is the way I I, I explain it to the client, and then um, I do try and make a, a fairly minimum clip for them. But it's it's 
it's, it's communication. Explaining, and yeah, it's, it's explaining. So, it's, it's I, was, I was thinking this is going to segue nicely to the next item that is really important. It's a bit difficult to discuss, um, but it does for for our hospital. It does raise the question about what. about how serious the procedure is that we're doing. And so I'm talking about resuscitation. Um, And one thing about um, resuscitation is that you can generate a lot of costs very quickly. Um, It can take, um, and I know it's happened at our hospital where we've had two or three vets committed to an animal with three or four or five staff, so eight people all at once for 15 or 20 minutes, um, and that is a considerable cost to the practice, not to mention the medications and um, and ventilating devices and whatnot that might be going on. So um, I think that it's really important to canvas with people beforehand um, what do we do if we have an arrest. It also highlights to them many people despite the fact that we always emphasise there's a a low risk um, with anaesthesia, um, uh, people don't necessarily associate low, when you talk about a low risk, um, they're not necessarily thinking that's a risk of the animal dying until you talk about what happens if we arrest, are we going to resuscitate, and that can crystallise a very important concept in people's minds. And it, you've got to be a little bit careful. You don't give them the the, the cremation um, list list of the um, of the different types of cremation when you're admitting them for the surgery for the day. So you have to be a, t- a tad careful with things there. But yes, and it and I think some people find it a bit confronting that when you do have and we basically stole it off you, Mark. It's a tick box. Do I wish? to have my animal resuscitated if um, or attempted resuscitation if if things go south um yes or no um tick box i think it is and um it, it often is a bit of a conversation starter isn't it mark um in that they think oh actually it is a it is something serious it's a general anesthesia and and deaths do happen um, with anaesthesia, unfortunately, um, and uh, and luckily enough, at, at low level um, most of the time, um, percentage wise. So yeah, it, I think it's an important one, and um, it's um, yeah. And I actually had a rabbit last week, a rabbit castration last week. Um, lovely client, um, and um, she calls a spade a spade, and beautiful um, large breed rad, rabbit that I castrated, and. She was filling out the form and she looked at the um, do I want my rabbit resuscitated or not if if need be and she said, I love him very much but not that much and she said <laughs> she did no. <laughs> so, um, but she was very glad that he went home after his castration um, quite um, alive, Mark. So, yeah, that was good. Um, and the, the next one that, um, I, again, I stole from you, Mark, is um, we have a little media use um, tick box and that's um, – basically a generic sort of line saying can um, can we use any photos or videos of your animal on our social media sites and or teaching if if appropriate um, and I think that's a good one to have on there because yeah it's um, it's amazing how many of them where I've taken pictures of, of lumps or bumps or procedures or even cute animals um, and then we have to go back and, and phone up the client and say look is it okay if we use this on our on our Facebook page or whatever um, and, and you there have are. That filled in pre- pre- previously yeah and there are genuine reasons for people to not want um an animal so we've actually had the circumstance because of this clause on our consent form where someone has said to us look i'd really prefer that uh Fido, the name's been changed to protect the innocent. Uh, Fido wasn't put on social media because, um, you know, we, we've moved away from a domestic violence situation and the bloke is looking for us. Um, and if he could somehow find the dog, um, then he'll find me. So there are some people who have genuine, serious reasons life-changing reasons for not wanting their animal on social media and it's always good to canvas that before you uh before you um post things up and get their permission yes and i think it's one that you'd 
I find we have to sort of downplay a bit in that they look at that and they almost feel like a bit of a threat um, that, you know, consent for media or not. And um, a lot of people are a bit confused. Maybe it's the way we're wording it at the moment. But um, once we explain that, oh, no, it might be just, you know, um, Brendan does a bit of teaching and he might use a picture of the of the mass that we're removing or the dental. Um, or if um, there's a cute picture of um, Fido recovering that we want to pop on, Facebook or other social media, then we'll run it past you first anyway, um, almost every time, um, and and that's the sort of thing we want to use it for. So yeah, um, but I think it's a, a good one to have on there. And thank you very much for um, having that, there, Mark. Um, I think the last one we'll cover, and and the, we had a few other dot points. We'll cover them in a, in another episode, Mark, and that's um, pharmacology and, and requests for medications and that because that's a bit of a another can of worms and we'll do it as a separate podcast. But the last one is the consent for euthanasia forms, Mark, and I presume you use those for every every euthanasia that is planned in your clinic? I We do and I, I can... It's one of those areas that um, being involved with the board and seeing complaints, um, I can guarantee you that I would never be without a consent for euthanasia form. That that there are um, they are they are viewed legally as a statutory declaration. The client signing them is declaring the facts as they know them. Um, I do know of cases where people have been malicious um, and taken animals. To be euthanized and uh, and um, made claims on that stat deck form that that were not true. So they literally have um, taken a neighbour's cat and had it euthanized because it was um, urinating on their front door, um, and um, and that um, and, and they presented that form. I've changed the circumstances, but for demonstration purposes. Yes. Um, but um, but they. Uh, um, literally um, said that they were the owner and the, the, the vets, of course, were um, uh, uh, in a very difficult position. Uh, but because they had a consent form that the client had signed and made certain um, uh, understandings about the nature of the animal, um, they were not in a, a difficult legal position um, the responsibility is all on the person who's signed that um, statutory declaration, the consent for euthanasia form. So I can't emphasise enough how important that is. Yes, and we certainly use them for every every euthanasia. And the this, this sort of related form, Mark, because a lot of them get euthanized, is the, is the wildlife admission form as well, where we get some basic details of of the um, wildlife species that was picked up by the member of the public, including where they found it, whether whether they fed the animal and what they've given it, and um, the contact numbers so we can get back to them and tell them the outcome of that. But with those consent for euthanasia's forms, Mark, and we went through it with the euthanasia podcast. I forget what number it was. It's always a great idea if you can manage to get them to fill out all these sorts of things before the actual procedure which even could include you know um, not on the day of the, of the euthanasia mark um, so it's getting most of that paperwork out um, before we go through the actual procedure of taking the client into the consultation room and depending on the client it may also include um, doing the payment for for the consultation and the euthanasia and the disposal if if appropriate for it so we've got all the Hard bits out of the way, um, or the or the or the paperwork bits anyway, out of the way, um, and it just makes things a lot easier on everybody, especially the client. I think if if they've signed everything and 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 sorted all that out before you do the actual euthanasia, and I and I think most the the good news is most. Um, most places um, in in not, well in the world, um, most jurisdictions and and um, veterinary associations have variations on on the euthanasia forms that that and templates basically that people can can use and modify for their region. So I, I think there's lots of them out there, and and there's probably a whole list of them on on sites like Vin as well. I'm sure that um, people post those sorts of things, generic forms, and that. Um, I think the key thing about it, though, Brendan, is that I know in the busy nature of practice, it's always the, 
you know, the euthanasia that comes in um, unexpectedly on a busy afternoon. And that's those ones where you, you feel like, ah, oh, just can't quite get around to it right now. Um, they're the ones that will blow up in your face. And so I think um, not just having the forms, but this is one of the ones where you have to have them and use them. Um, and it does it does sometimes make things difficult, uh, I've got no doubt. And like you said, the logistics, having a great team who uh, get the paperwork all done beforehand so um, there's no awkward questions about um, signing things or money after the the uh, procedure is done, um, that's all awesome. But um, making sure that form signed is critical, I reckon. Yeah, otherwise they're, you know, they're quite emotionally upset, obviously, and they might just head out the door and see you later and you haven't got that form signed and that they're the, they're the ones, like you said, that might blow up in your face and you've ended up with a difficult situation if... Um, if there was some dispute over the actual ownership and who who um, whether the actual owner brought that animal in for euthanasia, as you gave with that case report example there, Mark. Well, as usual, we've gone over time, and um, I think three quarters of our listeners have um, gone off to a lullaby to to um, to. <laughs> and it's amazing how many of our clients do like to use our our droning voices um, to fall asleep to, Mark. And I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, having said that, we're going to get out of here so you can um, finish your little snooze and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Vetgurus.com, the place to go. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.